Uh, talk on defending an early high Christology with archaeology and New Testament letters, and I'll be particularly focusing on the epistle of James in terms of New Testament letters. Uh, high Christology, that means uh, the Christian view of Jesus, that he was not only uh, human, but that he was the divine son of God. I'm sure many of you will have come across one time or another the view uh, that says something like uh, of course there may well have been a, a Jewish uh, rabbi uh, call him Jesus if you like who told some nice uh, parables and he had some Jewish followers and so on but uh, neither he nor they uh, not the the early followers of Jesus uh, thought of him as divine that's something that sort of evolved later on uh, particularly people say when uh, Christianity moved out of the Jewish context into the Gentile world where of course you've got lots of mythology about uh, demigods and so on uh, that they sort of divinized Jesus later but that's a, a misunderstanding of who Jesus was so you uh, I'm sure uh, will meet this view uh, in people or on the internet uh, or in the media uh, Mark Mittelberg says this is a very uh, common view that the belief in Jesus as the divine person arose long after he walked the earth and he particularly picks up on uh, Dan Brown's novel uh, The Da Vinci Code uh, where this was one of the uh, key ideas that uh, the novel popularised uh, the idea that uh, it wasn't until the, the church council of Nicaea uh, three centuries after Jesus that Christians started worshipping as the divine son of God uh, and that's a mistaken idea and I'm going to uh, prove that uh, in part one of this talk simply by looking at archaeological data without going to any of the New Testament textual data. So here's a quote from the Da Vinci Code that uh, focuses on this theme. Um, Professor uh, Teabing here uh, saying that Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, uh, a man great and powerful but a man nonetheless and uh, not the son of God uh, asked the character he's talking to right he says uh, Jesus's establishment as the son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the council of Nicaea uh, which is the church council that happened in 325 325 AD in the 4th century now it is true to say that the council of Nicaea did discuss the divinity of Jesus and did have a vote about it However, what they were discussing was how to theologically, uh, creedly put their belief, their already agreed belief in the divinity of Jesus. And there was a marginal uh, Arian view that wanted to say that Jesus was a created divinity uh, against the orthodox uh, majority view that said, no, he's not a created divinity, he is and uncreated he is uh, begotten not created as ends up in the Nicene Creed uh, and the vote on that was something like 300 to 2 so it was hardly by a narrow uh, vote nor was it really the issue was he divine or not but rather how do we think of him as divine and there were just a few people at that stage uh, with a view that I think when you compare that view to the uh, church tradition and the New Testament documents uh, uh, is a sort of heterodox uh, view of Jesus' divinity. But 
Dan Brown's putting across the idea here that you know no one even thought of him as divine until the fourth century, and uh, that is uh, poppycock, as we say in English, or a load of baloney. Here's a, a collection of uh, data about Jesus's miracles, the ones that are mentioned in more than one of the Gospels. Let's uh, just pick up on the feeding of the 5,000, which is the one miracle that's mentioned in all four of the Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels and John as well, uh, in a literarily independent manner. And think about the Old Testament background behind the feeding of the 5,000. So you have, of course, in the Exodus story, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, manna from heaven. But also uh, the prophet Elisha, there's a pro uh, story about the prophet Elisha in Two Kings, about uh, giving 20 loaves of barley bread. Uh, how can I set that before 100 man men, his servant asks. And Elisha says, give it to the people. The Lord says, they will eat and have some left over, which might resonate with you with what happens in the feeling of the 5,000, where they have uh, 12 baskets left over, of course. And they ate and they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. So Jesus' feeding of 5,000 people from a few loaves of bread and two fish uh, with leftovers is uh, evidenced in a number of standard historical ways, including being mentioned uh, by these independent uh, sources uh, in all four Gospels, as I say, but you know, there's the Synoptic Gospels, uh, which have a little sort of literary uh, dependency on one another. John is independent, and uh, that witness includes eyewitnesses and, and so on. There's an Old Testament background to the miracle that gives it its, its meaning and significance. Now this is the Christian church discovered in 2005. Uh, in the grounds of Megiddo prison when they were trying to extend the prison and they stumbled across this mosaic floor uh, with the, the stump of a table uh, in the middle of the floor. This is looking top down and here you can see here's the table, here's that large mosaic with the, with the circle, here are the other mosaics around it, sort of a reconstruction of the original building that's been uh, dated pretty securely by the kind of uh, pottery that's there and so on. We will notice on this mosaic here we have the picture of two fish. I think this is fairly clearly a reference to uh, the biblical story of the feeding of the 5,000 because of the two fish and also we know independently that fish became a Christian symbol very early on in Christian history uh, because the, the Greek word for fish, ichthus, was used as an acrostic, that is where the first, uh, each of those letters in the word ichthus fish becomes the first uh, letter of a, another word and it spell out uh, the statement when you translate it into to English, uh, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Saviour. So again it's plausible to see these not only as a reference to a biblical story, the point of which is about Jesus providing bread from heaven like God does in the Old Testament, but also that fish, ichthus, is used as an early Christian symbol 
because it has this statement associated with it through the acrostic about Jesus being God's son. Uh, so that is interesting when you're trying to think nobody thought of him as the son of God uh, before the 4th century and yet here we are in 230-ish AD. Here is a painting, one of several paintings from the walls of a baptistry of a church in what's now modern-day Syria, in a place called Dura Europos, uh, that's dated these uh, fresco paintings to about 230-something uh, AD. And you can probably make out here, there's a, there's a figure lying on a bed, and a man standing over the figure on the bed with an arm outstretched over him, and if you think of this as a sort of before and after picture, then you have a man carrying his bed as well. What story does this put us in mind of from the Gospels? Uh, well, how about the paralyzed man who's lowered through the roof and Jesus uh, heals him in conjunction with his claim to forgive his sins? which raises the question from the uh, Jewish, and particularly the uh, Jewish religious audience there, about, well, who does this guy think he is? Here is the, the telling of the story in Mark. Uh, why does this fellow talk like that, saying, son, your sins are forgiven? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So this reference, I'm not, I'm not bringing forth this painting as evidence that this event happened or something like that. I'm bringing it forth as evidence that people in the 230s AD were referencing and believing in what is significant about this picture. And clearly the significant point is this picture is referring to the story, the central point of which is a claim uh, on Jesus' part uh, to uh, fulfil functions that Jews would attribute only to God. Or um, Jesus' calming of the storm, mentioned in three, the three uh, synoptic Gospels, uh, attested again in various standard historical ways, uh, but we can add a little bit of what uh, uh, we call a cultural verisimilitude, if we pronounce that carefully, uh, from archaeology, uh, when there was a drought in the, the Sea of Galilee and the, the drought uh, uncovered a boat that was in the mud, uh, and uh, started drying out and the archaeologists had to very quickly save and preserve this first century fishing boat which fits with the details of the story. This is not like we can't say this is the boat that Jesus in, was in when but this is the kind of boat that Jesus was in when and you can see for example that the boat was large enough to take Jesus and 12 disciples. Um, the, the story claims that they were all in a boat together and you, you know that that's a detail that you can check archaeologically well did they in the first century on that lake have boats that, that were, were that big or not well it turns out they did uh, did it have a platform which Jesus is talking about Jesus was asleep at one end of the boats when it happens there's a little platform that he could have been asleep on and so on so it kind of gives cultural verisimilitude to the story uh, details there. And again, the Old Testament background, see of uh, Psalm 107 here, talking about they cried out to the Lord in their troubles and he brought them out of their distress. 
He stilled the storm to a whisper, the waves of the sea were hushed. So again, Jesus calming the storm, it's not just a, ooh, well that's sort of impressive. Uh, you can read it against the Old Testament background as an enacted claim to divinity. That it's also a miraculous uh, way of making that claim so that it backs up the claim being made through the miracle. The miracle is doing double function, as it were. And again, people were referring to this story. Or Jesus walking on the water, mentioned independently by uh, two of the synoptics and John. And here in the house church in Duryodhus, we have a painting on the wall. Here are the disciples in their boat. Uh, here, standing on the, the, the water, is the figure of Jesus. His head's fallen off, unfortunately, here. And uh, here we have another figure reaching up towards him, reaching up towards him because, well, he's not really quite standing on the water. He seems to be sinking a bit into it. He's doing the thing Roadrunner does when he runs off the cliff and then realizes that he's not standing on land anymore and looks down and the falls. Uh, it's clearly the story of Jesus walking on the water and calling Peter to walk towards him and then Peter realizing what he's doing and losing faith and, and falling in the water. But again, against the Old Testament background of, say, something like Job 9.8, he alone, that's God alone, stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea. So perhaps, again, this is an enacted claim uh, to divinity, saying, I, I can also, I can trample on the waves of the sea, uh, taking that Old Testament imagery. So these miracle stories that are being referenced, uh, I think in the original context, you can talk about the evidence for the occurrence of those miracles, um, but at the very least just take them as stories the point of the stories is that they are enacted claims to divinity and here you have people uh, in the 230s AD referencing those stories in the baptistry of their church so clearly these people believed in the divinity of Jesus that's I think the connection that uh, we should obviously make. This is the painting right over the baptistry pool. You would climb up into the baptistry pool that's sort of down here. Uh, above it there's this uh, fresco. Uh, you see here a flock of sheep and a sheep being carried over the shoulders of a man. There's the man's head, his shoulders and the sheep. The sheep's head's there and he's carrying the sheep. Again, um, you know, what that might that be talking about? Well, uh, the Old Testament uses this imagery as God as the shepherd of his people. The Lord is my shepherd, says Psalm 23, for example, just one of many. Um, but here we have uh, the figure of someone carrying the sheep, but we know it's in a church context, and we do uh, have the information from John's Gospel we can put together with this painting that Jesus was thought to have used that terminology about himself. Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And that connection is plausible because this is the painting above the baptistry and the Christians uh, uh, adopted but uh, put new different significance upon Jewish baptismal uh, practices, being baptised into Christ. Um, so that association between um, baptism 
and this imagery against that Old Testament and New Testament background, again, I think speaks to at least the fact that these people in Syria in the 230s had a very high Christology. Back to the Megiddo uh, church, we've looked at the fish on one side, let's look at one of these inscriptions, so quite interesting, but this one is particularly interesting, here, and there's a close-up of it, and here's the uh, English translation, it's talking about a lady called Akeptus, who has offered the table, she's basically given the money for the communion table in the middle of the church, uh, I've offered the, ta- offered the table to God Jesus Christ as a memorial. So here it is in uh, black and slightly faded white, an inscription in this mosaic uh, from early uh, 3rd century saying, God Jesus Christ. Um, The Alexaminos Graffito or Graffiti, being dated to around the turn of the first, second, second to third century, so AD 200-ish. It really gives you a sense of the the cultural uh, view of Jesus and Christianity from pagan culture. Um, Here we have um, a donkey-headed figure of a man who's being crucified, he's on a cross, standing there on a beam, he's being crucified. We have a man looking up at him, with his hand outraged there, looking at one another, and the, the legend on the graffiti uh, says something like, Alex Aminos worships his God, or Alex Aminos, worship your God. What, you know, what a complete idiot Alex Aminos is, who has chosen to worship as a God, someone who made such an ass of himself by getting crucified. Yeah, that's the kind of the cultural view. Why on earth would you worship as God a criminal who was crucified? How embarrassing is that? Um, So this, in a sense, you could call enemy attestation. It's clearly someone attacking Christianity, but in the process of doing that, telling us that what's central here is that Alex Aminos is worshipping a crucified man as God. And although it doesn't say, and by the way, that's Jesus that he's worshipping, <laughs> you know, um, who else can we plausibly think of in that historical context uh, that someone in Rome at that historical period might be worshipping who got himself crucified? There aren't really a very long list of candidates, let's put it that way. <laughs> and, and one last bit of archaeology in it, an inscription, uh, probably a funereal inscription, they think. Um, it's been known about for, for a time, and different people have done studies on it, and then more recently this guy called uh, Gregory Snyder uh, of Davidson College uh, in America did another study in which he supported the idea that this was an, an early uh, inscription uh, that at least carries some Christian ideas in it, even if it's not fully Christian. He thinks it might be a mixture of Christian and pagan stroke Gnostic ideas. Uh, but he dates this inscription uh, with the fancy name of NCE156, if you want to look it up, uh, uh, written in Greek, and he dates it to the latter half of the second century. So this is the earliest bit of archaeology uh, relevant to our question here, and he thinks that it is a second century inscription. It's probably about the earliest Christian material object that we possess. 
and he translates the inscription here, and it's a, it's a bit of a different thought world, try and go with the sort of feeling of the imagery here, okay? Um, think, is this a, a funereal sort of poem or something? Uh, to my bath, the brothers of the bridal chamber carry the torches. Here in our halls, they hunger for the true banquets, even while praising the Father and glorifying the Son. There, with the Father and the Son, is the only spring and source of truth. So there's this sort of imagery of carrying the dead guy to his final resting place in this torch-lit procession, and finally, now that he's dead, he'll, he'll discover the true secrets of wisdom and knowledge that spring from the Father and the Son, whom we glorify. So you can see how they're saying there might be a sort of mixture of Christian and Gnostic sort of secret knowledge ideas in there, maybe. But certainly we, we have here, even if not a fully you know, Christian, sort of New Testament Christian view of Jesus, we have a high Christology we have the, the mention of the name of the Father, praising the Father and glorifying the Son. So this, there's an idea here of Jesus as the Son of God, in some sense at least, who is, who is glorified and praised in the same breath as, as the Father. So let's put that on a, a pictorial way for you in a chart. If we uh, date, as I would, the crucifixion to uh, 33 AD, we mark out 100-year gaps here. So here we have the Council of Nicaea, is this red line at 325 AD. No one thought of Jesus as the Son of God or as divine until it was proposed and voted on at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Oh, really? Look at this archaeology from over 100, 150 years earlier, which taken together... I think gives a very powerful argument that at least there were some people quite a long time before the Council of Nicaea who had a high Christology, who thought of Jesus as God, or the Son of God, or both, to be glorified, etc. And notice as well, we've got evidence here from modern-day Syria, from Megiddo is in, in Israel, the Aksuminos Graffito is in Rome, uh, I'm not sure of the geological provenance of this funeral in, in, inscription, but that's quite a wide geographical spread. Um, so the, the, uh, the, uh, the ideas about Jesus uh, from uh, Israel, you know, do they, do they spread and these people all just sort of coincidentally in these different places end up with a sort of high Christology? Or did that come from a a single central source and then uh, spread and you know, apply Occam's razor to those two theories. So I think you can just completely demolish this sort of Dan Brown, oh it's all a conspiracy with the Council of Nicaea and um, they just you know, completely misread Jesus hundreds of years after uh, in a completely different context. Uh, that's where all that religious overlay of the, the simple a uh, Palestinian peasant teacher came from, just blow that out of the water without even going near the Bible uh, from the archaeology. You do bring in the Bible in terms of looking at the, the context of things, but you're not using the Bible to say 
this happened, Jesus did make this claim or did do this miracle, but rather to say, look, this is clearly what these people are referencing and the, these people at this historical period are therefore probably having certain beliefs that reflect those beliefs. And that, that's, those are uh, different things. Yeah. Uh, you said the Laxamenas Gratini was in Rome. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, when I looked at the picture, I thought it looked more like a, you know, a man up here, but with a horse head or uh, animal head. Was was it uh, probable that you would depict Jesus with a? Uh, right. So yeah, this is a question about the Alexaminas Graffito and and why is there a, an animal head? Is it probable you do that? Um, uh, Yes, it is. I can look up the reference for you later if you want, but we've got another historical reference uh, uh, to uh, someone else who was making fun of Christians by carrying around uh, a, a picture of a, a donkey-headed man. I, I, it seems to be the sort of equivalent of a sort of um, political satire cartoon uh, way of having a go at Christians from that sort of era. Um, so it, it, it's not the only, it's the only, I think, pictorial example we have, but we have a a written uh, testimony to that kind of thing happening as well. Yeah, yeah. Any other uh, questions on this whole sort of Council of Nicaea and using archaeology to to undermine it? I say you you do reference the, the reference the Bible in a sense with the particularly the Dura Europos stuff, but you know the Megiddo Church is just it's there written in an inscription. <laughs> I've given this table in, in memorial to the God Jesus Christ, 230 something AD. So, if there are no questions, I'll move on to the, the second uh, section. So, an atheist like uh, Matthew Neal, here in his books, uh, The Atheist History of Belief, uh, says that Jesus had never considered himself a God. And in the first decades after his death, Jesus still appears to have been regarded by his followers, including Paul, uh, as thoroughly human and not a god. But by the early second century, Jesus had become fully supernatural in people's minds. Or uh, John Loftus, who claims that there was a, uh, a gradual development of a higher, more glorified view of Jesus in a process of deification that took at least 70 years. Now, if we put the sort of the Loftus line and the Neil line on our chart here, we can see that those claims of an evolutionary Christology are at least compatible with the existent archaeological evidence. So you can't hold those claims by pointing to this evidence that deals with the Council of Nicaea, but not with the Neil Loftus sort of 70 years. It was early in the second century when people started thinking of him as divine. And you can see that that kind of fits in uh, with the, the idea that you have to move beyond Jesus and in his initial circle of monotheistic Jewish uh, followers and get out into the, the pagan world of gods and demigods and um, you know, Hercules and, and all of this and that maybe under those kind of cultural ideas people just sort of divinized Jesus. Well, let's deal with this not by going to the Gospels, but by going to the New Testament letters. Uh, because these letters, as uh, Dean L. Overman here points out, 
Uh, one thing you can point out is many of the, the devotional creeds and hymns and things that people like Paul quote in their letters in the first century, in the middle of the first century, uh, which therefore precede, are even earlier than those sources, and which display a, a pattern of worship of Jesus uh, and refer to him as divine and so on. So here we have the New Testament letters which are on any dating come from the first century and thus predate uh, the end of this supposed evolutionary Christology. And we can uh, highlight things uh, such as the, the undisputed letters of Paul, such as uh, 1 Corinthians and Romans and Philippians and so on, uh, which themselves display a concept of a divine Jesus within 16 to 20 years of the crucifixion by quoting sources that predate those letters themselves. Uh, a lot of these creeds uh, translate easily back into Aramaic, show sort of Hebraistic uh, thought forms and the poetry of them, easy to remember, and it's uh, fairly agreed on scholars across the sort of uh, religious spectrum uh, about these uh, bits of the text. And we're not just sort of pointing to some sort of fanciful e evangelical or fundamentalist sort of way of reading the scripture here to point to this data. If we look at the, here's a chart of the, the sort of general idea of the dating of the, the letters. Um, here's the Neil line at the end of the uh, century there, Loftus line a little bit earlier. But here's, uh, say, so the letter of Titus from uh, the mid-60s talking about Jesus as our great God and Saviour. Or uh, Colossians 2.9, the whole fullness of deity, the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. But I want to focus on the letter of James, uh, uh, particularly because I'm going to argue that we could, it could well be the earliest New Testament letter that we have. Uh, I'll argue that it could date as early as 45 to 49 AD. Uh, which is plenty, you know, 40, 58 years before the Loftus line, a mere 12 to 16 years after the cross. James refers to um, the Lord Jesus Christ and describes his readers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And he also talks about the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong when people are, are persecuting Christians. It says they're blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong. Uh, you mean a word like Adonai? Well, I'll, I'll, good question about the, the language here. I will go into that. Uh, so first, just the, the term blaspheming here, you might think, well, that's a dead giveaway. It, it's not necessarily because the, the term blaspheming can be used of just speaking ill of a fellow human being. So it doesn't have to mean blasphemy in the, the full sort of theological sense that we think about it, although it can do. I think what tips us off here is the, is the context of use, again, that blasphemy is being used in, in its fullest sense here. Um, but it's in line of the Jewish creed or Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, by calling Jesus Lord, early Christians were making a sort of substitution here, identifying Jesus with the Lord of the Old Testament. Uh, so Paul in 1 Corinthians, the undisputed letter from the mid-century, uh, adapts that Jewish creed and says there is one God, the Father, 
and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, the Jewish Septuagint translation of the, the Hebrew Old Testament used the, the Greek word Kyrios, Lord, to translate um, Adonai in the, in the Hebrew. Josephus reports that first century Jews refused to address the Roman Emperor as Kyrios, as Lord, precisely because they believed the term should only be applied to Yahweh. Uh, so that use of Lord against that background does seem to be just a, a substitution, talking about the same thing that the, the Old Testament is talking about, and Paul's now folding Jesus into that statement of faith. What about the noble name to whom you belong? The Greek uh, word Christianos comes from uh, Christos, it's the translation of the, the Hebrew Messiah, anointed one, uh, plus an ending borrowed from Latin that denotes adhering or belonging to, particularly as in um, being owned as a slave by someone. Remember, this is produced as a term of abuse originally. The Septuagint again uses Christos to translate the, the Hebrew for Messiah. Christians are those who are called upon by the name of, or belong to, or are slaves of the Christ, the Messiah. So Christ is the noble name of him, of Jesus, to whom Christians are dear or belong or are owned as slaves by. Indeed, uh, one of the English translations tries to bring this out, this point out explicitly in the translation. So the NLT translates James 2.7 by saying, um, aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ whose noble name you bear? That's trying to, to make explicit what is implicit in the, in the language, in the translation there. And of course, Jesus originally uh, uh, talked about himself as, you know, I am the way and the truth and the life. And his followers picked up on this and thought of themselves originally as followers of the way. That's how they described themselves. And you can see a whole list of biblical references to followers of Jesus describing themselves as followers of the way. And it was outsiders, it was pagans, who coined this term of abuse, oh you Christians, you Messiah slaves. You want us all to become slaves of your Jewish Messiah. You know. uh, so the use of Christian began as outsider language, and we know this from various sources, biblical and non-biblical. So Tacitus, the Roman historian, talking about the emperor uh, Nero blaming the great fire of Rome uh, in AD 64 upon those, quote, whom the crowd called Christians. Uh, 1 Peter 4.16 shows us, uh, written in Rome, by the way, shows us that this terminology had probably been adopted by at least part of the, the Jesus-following community by the 60s AD. And we have Peter in uh, 1 Peter 4.16 saying, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And again, he's using this language of bearing the name. Luke reports Herod Agrippa teasing Paul the Apostle in AD 61. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? You think about the, the meaning of that, given the, the outsider usage of the language. Here is this, this uh, political leader, this king, saying, Paul, you're trying to persuade me, the powerful political ruler king, uh, to become a slave. You know, this is not a socially, culturally appealing <laughs> notion. <laughs> 
Luke notes that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. He notes that in Acts 11.26, and the context there suggests that the term Christian was already in use by the critics of followers of the way, uh, if not by followers of the way themselves, uh, by about AD 46. So the noble name of him to whom you belong. James 2.7 echoes several Old Testament passages that speak of Israel being called upon by God's name. It's a phrase borrowed from the Old Testament. Uh, it's particularly said of Israel that the name of God was called on them. So various examples from Deuteronomy, the two chronicles, Isaiah, let thy name be called over us. The name of Jehovah is called upon thee and so on. Uh, Amos 9.12, the nations to whom my, uh, my name is called, on whom my name is called. So there's a repeated use of this phrase in the Old Testament and the writer of the letter of James is taking that and reapplying it in response to the outsider language of you Christians and saying don't be ashamed to bear the name that they're blaspheming the name that you own as Christians. So you see again a substitution of an Old Testament reference to God turning into a New Testament reference to Jesus. So James's talk of the noble name substitutes Christ for God's name that owns God's people in the Old Testament. Therefore James believed Jesus Christ to be divine and another angle on this as well that backs that up is that indeed James's very omission of the actual name of the noble name of him to whom you belong indicates the Jewish idiom for avoiding a direct reference to the name of God at the time. Um, he's, he's sort of circuitously talking about what's going on rather than directly invoking the name. Um, therefore uh, Jesus uh, is believed to be divine by, by James because he's He's avoiding talking about the name directly in the same way that as a Jew he would avoid talking about the name of God. Now so far we've just taken the, the contents of the letter as is, but what about the authorship of uh, James? We've got unanimous testimony from the early church fathers that it was James, the half-brother of Jesus. There's no other alternative author suggested. There's no competing tradition. Um, the other men that we know of who had the name James uh, from the New Testament are generally thought not to have been you know, prominent enough, authoritative enough, to write uh, an authoritative general epistle from the heart of the church to the diaspora of the church. Um, the lack of any qualifying designation in the letter specifying, well, which James is it who's writing this letter, indicates that he had to be a well-known, highly respected figure who could just get away with saying, hi everyone, I'm James, and, you know, we're only famous people we you know, like, get away with by first names. If I, if I say, oh, I was watching our TV the other day, and Oprah said, you, you know, you don't ask, well, which Oprah? You know, there must be more than one people with that name, but that sort of prominence uh, just comes across, so that seems to fit in. Uh, he displays a local knowledge. We know James lived in Jerusalem, and the letter displays a local knowledge of the area, um, particularly in talking about the earlier and later reigns, for example, that I'm told by this commentator, Douglas Moo, 
uh, only happen in that part of the, the, the coast of the uh, ancient world there. And there's some teasing linguistic links between the Epistle of James and what uh, Luke records in Acts 15 about the words of James and the letter uh, under James's authority that the church sent out from the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, they indicate, hey, there's a, there's a guy here who seems to talk in the same sort of way that the, whoever wrote the letter of James talks. Um, and, you know, we know from Acts that it's James, the brother of Jesus. Um, and even, even down to in, in, in Acts, talking about the Gentiles who bear my name. Maybe this was a very key idea. It's up front in the letter and it's up front in his discussion about Gentile Christians, followers of the way, uh, there in Acts. So I think we've got really good reason to go with Alistair McGrath, for example, in saying that the letter of James was probably written by James, the brother of Jesus. And there's a whole bunch of quotes by other New Testament scholars uh, agreeing on that. Um, just for fullness. Now, so-called liberal scholarship would disagree with that and attribute the letter to an admirer of James writing under a pseudonym between 80 and 100 AD. But hey, look, this liberal dating nevertheless flatly contradicts the Council of Nice Nicaea claim, and the the earlier end of that liberal dating uh, dating range is still incompatible with the evolving Christology taking at least 70 years, as John Loftus claims. Um, but we can push the dating, I think, earlier, uh, particularly in conjunction with the idea that the author of the epistle is indeed James, the brother of Jesus. That helps push it earlier as well. Um, various cultural conditions point to an early date. Uh, the fact that, that Christians still meet in the synagogue, they haven't been kicked out of the synagogue yet, James 2.2 and so on. Uh, those social, some of the agricultural practices mentioned fit with a, a pre-Jewish war uh, era and so on. But look, if the author of James was indeed James the brother of Jesus, then it had to have been written prior to his martyrdom in AD 62. Sorry? Or, or his listener uh, immediately after his death. Right. It has to be in, in, in close conjunction with that. And it, it's not like the letter is just like passing on uh, a tradition of storytelling that he used to do, like you know, Mark passing on Peter's stories or, or something. It is actually a specific letter written to a specific uh, situation and audience as, as well. Um, so I think that helps tie it to the, uh, the dating quite closely. Um, we know from Josephus that James was martyred in uh, 62 by stoning. And archaeology comes in here as well, because the, the controversial uh, uh, James ossuary, uh, having been through its court trial, uh, suggesting that the antiques collector, in whose collection it was noticed, uh, had maybe got a, made a, a fraudulent uh, artifact by putting an inscription on an old ossuary or adding uh, to the end of the pre-existing inscription on an ossuary that already said uh, James, son of Joseph, and then he added on brother of Jesus at the end in order to kind of sex it up. Um, the court case collapsed. More and more uh, scholars seem to be gravitating around to the view that actually this is authentic. And I would point you to um, an article uh, in the uh, Open Journal, uh, Journal of Geology 
uh, giving numerous lines of evidence supporting the authenticity and the ancient date of not only the, the box but the, the whole inscription uh, on uh, the box as well. So uh, this has been dated to uh, the mid-60s, which would fit in with uh, Josephus's uh, dating of James' martyrdom. And of course, is an interesting archaeological thing to have from the mid-60s, naming James and Joseph and Jesus. And uh, it was fairly unusual to, to put your brother's name on there unless there was something significant and well-known about him. You put son of so-and-so uh, on the ossuaries, but fairly rare to put additional information. Uh, so you can look this up online in the Open Journal of Geology, um, the authenticity of the James Ossery. Uh, you can Google it and find it yourself if you want to have a read of the, uh, the science behind the, uh, the James Ossery inscription. Uh, there's even some evidence that could push the date earlier to maybe, you know, 48, 40, 45 even. Um, there's uh, quite a close tie between the, the speeches of Jesus and some of the um, uh, allusions that James uses uh, in that letter, uh, which Luke Timothy Johnson, for example, argues shows uh, an earlier stage of the oral tradition than we see in the, in the Gospels even. Um, and uh, hence, any arguments for dating, uh, say, Luke and Matthew to the mid-60s after sort of John Robinson's sort of argument for redating the Gospels would, would then also push James uh, earlier. And there's a parallel between James 1.6 and Mark 11.23-24 that could suggest James was written prior to the publication of Mark's Gospel. Uh, and for reasons that I don't have time to go into, uh, but you can talk about it to me later if you like, uh, I would even put Mark's Gospel as early as 49. So those also help towards thinking James is, is pretty darn early. Uh, Douglas Moo again points out the absence of any reference in the epistle to the controversy between the Jews and the Gentiles that results in the, in the, the church council in Jerusalem in 48-49 AD. And he says that those themes would have been relevant uh, had that happened, but there's no mention of it. So, yeah, you could say, well, it's an argument from silence, but not, you know, arguments from silence have a varying spectrum of uh, soundness to them and it's uh, an interesting point to, to throw in which again could show a very early date. We notice if you think none of these bits of evidence on their own are particularly strong for a very early date but you do notice we've got several pieces of evidence pointing towards an early date so there's a cumulative case uh, and the question would be well is there, is there any evidence pointing to a later date than this? Um, so if you're just going to follow the evidence, you end up saying, well, it, you know, it's pretty strong evidence that it's pre-70-60, sort of 70, 60, um, but there is some evidence that it could be as early as 45, and we've got really no, no good reason to think it's later than that. Fits the situation and so on. Uh, Smith has an argument about the literary relationship between the works of James and Paul and that whole discussion about faith and works and who, if anyone, is having to reply to the other because other Christians are misinterpreting, you know, are other Christians misinterpreting what James wrote in order to say, look, there you are, you have to do works, you, you have to get circumcised and so on in order to be a Christian. Uh, those kind of issues which came up in the Council of Jerusalem. And if, uh, if Paul is having to reply to people misinterpreting James, that would put James 
his epistle earlier than the, the writings of Paul that, that deal with that uh, in Galatians, which would put it earlier than, than 48. Um, also, again, social situation in the, the early uh, mid-40s about uh, the persecution under Herod Agrippa I, and there was a, uh, a famine that occurred around there as well, and James talks about the hungry and the naked and so on in the letter. So maybe there's some clues there to the social situation that he's writing in matching up with a mid-40s date. Uh, so on the dating, I would conclude that, they, look, we've got good evidence to agree with McGrath that it's not later than the, the late 50s or the early 60s. Uh, but there is some evidence that could well push it as early as 45 AD. But whenever James was written, and indeed whoever the author is, the author and the audience had both clearly arrived at a belief in a divine Jesus at some stage before the epistle was written out to this diaspora. and. These people came from a monotheistic Jewish milieu. We're not talking about the stage at which the gospel had got into the Gentile world and is being perhaps influenced by Gentile ideas of divinity. This is coming from a Jewish writer writing to Jewish followers of the way. So there's the range of possible uh, dates there on James. 43 to 58 years before the Loftus line, 12 to 27 years-ish after the crucifixion. And indeed, if it is written by James, the brother of Jesus, that evidence comes from an eyewitness family member who John tells us was skeptical about Jesus' claims during his lifetime. So he, he's obviously changed his mind on this issue. Epistle to James could be the earliest New Testament letter that we have and the ideas come from before that, so we're practically on top of the crucifixion here. Agnostic Anthony O'Hare says we should remember the first followers were Jews, we're talking about Jews here, to whom the claims made, being made about Jesus' divinity would seem blasphemous had they not been given a very strong reason to believe them, and where better than from Jesus himself. So actually maybe there's an argument here to be made, not only that there was an early high Christology, but that the most obvious place to trace that high Christology back to, given how early this high Christology is, is from Jesus. And that there must have been something powerfully persuasive about those claims to get that particular socio-cultural uh, religious audience and people like James to change their mind about Jesus, to adopt that high Christology of Jesus. John Rist, uh, professor of classics, right? Uh, likewise studied the issue and came to the conclusion that the full range of Christian claims must go back to the very earliest followers and in all probability to Jesus himself. So that high Christology was not the result of a 70-year evolution. It's not really an evolution in Christology. It's a sort of Cambrian Big Bang explosion of Christology, if I can put it that way. Uh, and indeed, it points to being so early the fact that probably Jesus made some claims to divinity. That if James the brother is indeed the, the author, and that's I think what the evidence shows, it shows he went from being sceptical about Jesus to believing that he was divine, despite the embarrassment of the crucifixion. And remember the Alex Aminos uh, graffiti. Uh, he, he changed his mind on that within 
within a few years, maybe earlier, of the crucifixion. But as Rob Bowman says, it would never have occurred to anyone in the first century to invent a story about a crucified man as the divine saviour and king of the world. Something extreme and dramatic must have happened to lead people to accept such an idea. Um, Bar Ehrman, the sceptical New Testament uh, critic, says it's highly improbable that the earliest Jewish followers of Jesus would have made up the claim that the Messiah was crucified. We've seen how culturally embarrassing it was, how embarrassing it was to become a, a Christ slave, a slave of the crucified one. Why on earth would you do that? And why would a monotheistic Jew, who's resisting the pressure of the Roman Empire to worship the emperor, and they're like saying, oh, you know, you've got to worship the emperor, otherwise, you know, things are really dodgy for you. Why would they suddenly say, well, no, the emperor's not Lord, but Jesus is Lord, you know, I'm going to be a slave of that crucified guy and call him Lord, not the emperor. Why would someone like James or those diaspora Jews that he's writing to do that without powerful reason for doing it? Uh, which I think, again, points to the fact that in all probability Jesus laid claim to divinity and he must have done something or things that gave powerful reason for people to do that. And we've looked at some of the miracles that are referenced, that are claims to divinity, that also give evidence for divinity, uh, that are referenced by those house church paintings. But also, I think, you know, the crucifixion, what can turn that around? Well, at the very least, we can say, if, as uh, people report in, say, you know, the 1 Corinthians 15 creed, where Paul is passing on this early tradition, that, that notes the resurrection appearances of Jesus, including then he appeared to James. Why did James turn around? And this predates his early, uh, his mid uh, uh, sort of 50s letter, such that even secular atheist New Testament scholars like Gerd Ludemann here says the elements of this 1 Corinthians Creed tradition can be dated not later than three years after the death of Jesus within a couple of years, within months of Jesus' death, says James D. Dunn, this creed had been formulated by the Jewish church, one of the heads of which we know was James. And that indeed Paul is generally thought to have got this information. If he didn't get it in Damascus, after the road to Damascus experience, he's thought that he got it in Jerusalem in AD 36 from Peter and James. So that all sort of ties in together. And at the very least we can say, you know, if as the early eyewitnesses report, Jesus was not only crucified, having made claims to divinity, but was raised from the dead, that would, that would explain it. Uh, you know, the task for the person who wants to retain a scepticism about the, the high Christological Christian view of Jesus is to give a, a better uh, alternative explanation to the one that folks like James, who knew him and was there on the ground and was an eyewitness, <laughs> gave. Thank you very much. Okay, I turn over to you for, for questions. I think we've got uh, 10 minutes or so for yes. questions. Mm. Um, do you think the early church 
Thank you. Yes. So this is a question about the early church fathers of their useful source to go to. There's only a useful secondary source, um, particularly I think someone like Ignatius. Um, Ignatius um, uh, was, according to the early church historian Eusebius, he was martyred in 108. Some people give a slightly different date, but around about the early uh, second century, he was martyred. Uh, he was a Christian bishop. He was martyred in Rome by being thrown to the lions. And um, they did this to try and you know, stamp down on Christianity. It backfired on them because on his journey to Rome, he wrote letters to different Christian communities and one personal letter to a guy called Polycarp on the way expressing why he was willing to go and be torn to shred by lions just simply because he wouldn't, we wouldn't give up on saying, yeah, Jesus is my Lord. Okay, um, and this is someone whose who's trust in Christ and uh, willingness to go and die based on the fact that you know, while Jesus was raised and if I believe in him I too will be raised it's basically what he says to all these communities uh, comes primarily not primarily from having read the gospels or something like that it comes primarily from the fact that he knew people he was the disciple of people who had known Jesus' disciples. Uh, or he knew some of Jesus' disciples as well, particularly um, John, I think, when you put all the, the sources together. So he had a, a sort of oral testimony from people who knew Jesus or knew people who knew Jesus. And on the basis of that, he was willing to go and be torn to shred by lions. Uh, and basically wrote these seven letters. We still have them today. You can, you can look them up for free online and, and read them. They're powerful documents of this guy on his way to be martyred uh, and giving advice to the churches. And, and, and one interesting thing is that the, one, the, one of the early heresies that he's, he's saying, don't pay attention to people who say, well, of course Jesus was divine. He just wasn't human. He only appeared to be human. That was their sort of... Greco-Roman temptation was to dehumanize Jesus whilst holding on to his divinity. It, it wasn't that in the early days uh, the, the sort of drag of culture was, a, was away from the, divinity, from the humanity of Jesus and towards divinizing him. <laughs> That's an interesting thing that you can show from the letters of Ignatius, for example. Yeah. Yes, sir. In your presentation, you forgot uh, two, two confessions from the Gospel of John. It is just uh, the end of the first century. Uh, John 1, 18. Mm. Monogenes Theos, according to Papyrus 75. And uh, Thomas Confession, my Lord and mm. Yeah, so of, of course this is... All, this is a question about, well, I could have gone to, to other texts from the New Testament, particularly, say, the Gospels. As I said, I could go to the Gospels. Um, but that's, I think, where people automatically think of going. And it's kind of interesting to say, well, actually, you can go other places. And particularly on sort of liberal datings of the, of the New Testament, uh, the New Testament letters are, are generally thought to be, most of them at least, earlier than the Gospels. Um, so you're, you're able to show I'm going to earlier data by going to um, creeds in the letters of Paul or going to um, the epistle of James. I'm going to earlier data than appears in the gospel of certainly John. I mean, 
Um, even evangelical thinkers tend to think that John was written somewhere between 60 and 90. That's kind of the, the window of, of the debate over that with the synoptic gospels written earlier. As I say, I tend to date them quite early. So I think like Mark is 49 and Matthew and Luke are in the sort of um, 50s to early 60s. Um, but, you know, that's a whole controversial area and you can kind of avoid that and say, look, I'm just going to take um, things like the, the generally, the letters of Paul that even atheist scholars admit are genuine and date the middle of the first century and admit that he's quoting creedal material and hymns and so on that predate him uh, that he got from the, the church tradition from, from Jerusalem <laughs> which completely undermines this evolutionary Christology idea yeah so that's that's sort of uh, the tactic th that I'm employing in doing this but of course of course you can get plenty of high Christology by by going to the Gospels, yeah. Anyone else? I find it a bit interesting that uh, Bart Ehrman was commentating this to, uh, I mean, he's one of them who has left uh, the Christian belief, hasn't he? Yes. But he's the one pointing out that it's highly unlikable that the Christians would make this up. Right. It's, uh, he has said quite a lot of that stuff that it, he, he goes against us, but in one way he underlines Yeah, yeah. So this, this is uh, just a comment really about Bar Ehrman, a New Testament uh, critic from the States, uh, who um, went away from a sort of fundamentalist Christian background whilst at, at university, uh, and has written very prominent best-selling books on things like uh, um, how Jesus became God. So he, he falls in with this idea that sort of Jesus was, was divinized in, in a sense. Um, but on the other hand, he's also written books against, he wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? Arguing that Jesus really definitely existed and the, those mythicists uh, who say uh, not only was he just a, an ordinary sort of figure who was later divinized, but he didn't even exist. Uh, they're just, you know, on the kooky fringes of academia and you shouldn't pay serious attention to them. Um, so, yeah, uh, he's, he comes from now sort of agnostic, leaning towards atheist position, uh, I think he's, he's said. Um, but again, this is a sort of rhetorical tactic. Wh where you can agree with an atheist source, do so. Lead with an atheist scholar on the issue. Um, because then that doesn't allow the other person to say, oh, well, they're biased. Now, you know, the accusation of bias it's not really a good one, it's an ad hominem argument that's not dealing with the argument, it's just dealing with the person. But nonetheless, you don't even get into that issue, you don't open up that discussion if you can show, well look, here are the atheist or um, Jewish or whatever, you know, non-Christian New Testament scholars saying, yeah, this is the dating of this book, this creed goes back to this date, Jesus was definitely crucified, etc., etc. Um, build your case as much as possible on, on common ground that the, that the sceptics of, of Christianity would nonetheless accept. Yeah.